Hello, you're listening to this on podcast. And just be aware, because so much of this programme will be a tribute to the late and great Sinead O'Connor, we can't play chunks of music on the podcast legal reasons. So this will differ from the programme broadcast on Saturday mornings. Just so you know that, because the music for this, really important. Nevertheless, I hope you'll enjoy it. Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. Sinead O'Connor, an artist and a woman who could only ever be completely and utterly herself in all her rage, defiance, sorrow and joy. Her death was announced on Wednesday evening. She was just 56. With Philip Boucher Hayes on Thursday, this contribution from Philip King. We're bereft. Um, The music community, the singing community of Ireland is bereft. I think Ireland as a nation is bereft and deeply sad. And there has been an outpouring of both grief and affection and love for Sinead O'Connor, one of the world's greatest ever singers, one of the world's greatest ever artists. And I'm always reminded of Frank Hart's little phrase. Frank Hart was the great song collector. But he always said, if you want to know the facts, consult the history books. If you want to know what it felt like, ask a singer. And what Sinead did mm-hmm. was live in the world of feelings. She didn't sing the song. The song sang her. She inhabited the song like nobody else I have ever, ever seen. Tributes were paid from all corners of Ireland and internationally for a figure that embodied both strength and vulnerability. Her passing was a shock. Just as the news broke on Arena, Sean spoke to Dave Fanning. Dave, this is a, a kind of it. I heard this while we while we were on air. This is this is really devastating news. Yeah, uh, it really is. There's no question. Yeah. You you've known her for a long, long time, Dave. Yeah, um, the first interview she did was with us. Actually, it was around the time of she was in a band, Tom Tom McCoot, and she was making her solo album and, and all that. And uh, I can I can hear that this is difficult, Dave. So I'll I'll give you time to to gather. No, hold on a second. So the Faulkner Kelly was our manager, and when she came into the radio and said, "Look." You know, she might be a bit odd. And I said, look, I've met her before, it's fine. He always thought she was, like, capable of anything. She was an angel on that interview. Now, many times down through the years, she's been a lot different. And she's been kind of her own woman, if you like, very distinctive, very fiery. And, like, she was just fantastic. She was just brilliant. Obviously, the first few albums, The Lion of the Cobra has a history of its own because... She kind of said, I'm going to produce this myself and the record company said, don't be ridiculous. You know, you're pregnant, you're 18 or 19 or whatever. We're not going to let you do that. And uh, she did. And it was a huge success. And the guy in charge of the record company literally did have to eat his hat. And then I do not want what I haven't got on the second one. And that's when mm. she became really huge. And she made the Prince song, one of the greatest love songs of all time. And she went through so many different kinds of things music-wise than with all the rest of the album. And the last few 
How about I be me and you be you and I'm not bossy on the boss shows just for great pop songs you could do and great rock songs. But as a person, I mean, my God, like everything she did, she was just so her own person. And as a woman in the music industry and in an Ireland of the 80s and 90s, bold defiance in the face of so much. Also on Arena, Sinead Gleeson. How do you try to assess the place of Sinead uh, O'Connor in Irish music, indeed in Irish cultural life? Absolutely, there's there's just so much to say about her. Uh, and for me, growing up again, the landscape of Irish music, you know, in the eighties and nineties, was was very very male. And then this young woman, you know, I think she was twenty when when Mandinka came out. A woman who was very involved in the production of her music, was writing the songs herself, and sounded and looked the way she did. She didn't care what anybody thought about that. Her voice was unusual. That she didn't conform to kind of femininity and all these things. But the songs were incredible. The music were incredible. And all of Sinead's life, I think, whether whether that's in the studio or in her music or, or, or all the other things that she did was about being uncompromising, was about being transgressive, was, was just doing what Sinead wanted to do. Mm. And I think it, you have to look at Sinead's life, the music and her cultural contribution in the context of the time she grew up in. We're talking about an Ireland where people didn't speak up about things. People, There was a lot of silences. There was a lot of um, discrimination. And, and then we have this young woman speaking up about clerical abuse, about abortion, about all the things that people didn't want to speak about in Ireland, let alone have referenda on. Um, so for me I, I think the activism uh, alongside the music, even though it's very much what she was yeah. actually doing on the records I think the songs are timeless and again, she, as, as you, you know, that beautiful song that Paul just played, there's such a playfulness and there's humour in lots of the work and then there's you know, there's Troy and there's Three Babies there's Black Boys and Opeds, political songs songs of attrition, you know, songs that are very, very yeah. powerful, that are unforgettable and I think what we can all do tonight is maybe listen to the music and think about what a how much she crammed in. I mean, it feels like she's only 56. It feels like she's been yeah. around for such a long time because she started so young, but she always knew what she wanted to do. She was made to be a singer and she did it so, so, so brilliantly. There's, there's nobody like her. There, there never has been an Irish yeah. music and I don't think there will be again. Her first album, The Lion and the Cobra, was released in 1987 and it landed fully formed and unapologetic. With Philip, musician caught your Reardon, and she remembered hearing the song Troy from that album for the very first time. I don't remember a lot of my life very clearly, but I remember Troy. I remember when that track started and being absolutely rooted to the spot, like didn't want to breathe too loudly. One of those <laughs> moments in my life. And it was it just, it, it was incredible. And once it was over, played it again. Like, did that just happen? And it was yeah. just yeah. the completeness of it. You know, there's, you know, per, the perfection of it. And you were like, how old is she? Where is she from? I know, I know. It wasn't, yeah, I know. It, it wasn't a debut album so much as it was an announcement. I have arrived, mm. folks. Listen up and pay attention. And her innate talent was immediately recognisable. With Oliver, Joe Falvey, one of Sinead's teachers at Newtown School in Waterford. Yes, yeah, she was there kind of just strumming with her, um, with her friends. And I remember our first conversation outside of class, uh, kind of saying, um, whose song is that? I don't recognise it. And she said, that's mine. I wrote it. And then she uh, played other um, stuff for me. And what struck me day one, day two, day three, day 100, was for a 16, 17-year-old writing the way she was writing, mm. the insightful, the maturity, 
um, the um, the passion. You know, yeah. there was something uh, um, um, special about her. He approached a local pub to see if they'd like to have her perform. And I said, look, uh, there's a young one up in school. She needs, I, I think she's very talented. Would you give her a slot? Yeah. And they said, uh, no problem. If you think she's good, fair enough. So um, Sinead went up. I was sitting at the counter with Dominic Mulvaney. And all the people looking at their pints, this young one, 16-year-old. And then she started. It was the most memorable moment in my life. Wow. Everybody turned around. I said, what in the name of God is that? The power from this young, slim uh, girl. Mm. Uh, and it was a shattering moment. I had heard her, you know, singing gently around the school. This was power. Yeah. Uh, and um, Dominic Balvani, the main act that night, sitting <laughs> alongside me, turned around and said, how the F am I supposed to follow that? <laughs> well, he'd no hope. He'd no hope against yeah. that. Uh, And it was that incredible voice that so many contributors paid tribute to. And Sinead O'Connor did not confine herself to any genre, reggae, trad, pop. She made them all her own. And on Wednesday evening, John Creedon played song after song, each one distinctive, each one powerful, each one magic. Joining Anya, Mary Black shared her memories of singing with Sinead O'Connor. You know, she sang with such truth. You know, every word she sang in any song, you felt she meant it from the bottom of her heart. And she had that sort of brilliant, raw talent that came out no matter what song she sang. It was in old ballads that she might sing or it could be a hymn. You know, and any of her songs, she never just sang. She gave it her whole soul yeah. and heart, you know, and that's I think that's what made it special, so special. And as Brian Kennedy told Philip, she didn't seem to quite realise how special a musician she was. She just was one of those people that in one breath she was a lioness and a lamb, you know, in, the term, ah. in terms of I don't think she, you're right, she would never have known that so she touched so many people's lives. Because, you know, I think she was a very solitary person ultimately. You know, she walked yeah. the world in a very particular way, even though... Uh, you know, it's such a dichotomy to be such a public figure and yet to feel so alone. You know, certainly when I was ever able to be in the studio with her, recording with her, to be right beside that voice, it was, I mean, it was otherworldly, ah. first of all. And second yeah. of all, she was always saying, Is that, did, did I do it right? Did I do it good enough? Is it good? Was it oh. in tune? She was a lot oh, of kind of self-doubt about it too. And you just think, Sinead, you've just given us an incredible <laughs> vocal. Are you kidding me? But I suppose that yeah. just doesn't change in people, does it? After nothing compares to the Prince song she made utterly her own, her career success seemed inevitable. However, it was her appearance on Saturday Night Live in 1992 that would effectively end her career, in the US anyway. We find it necessary. We know we will win. We have confidence in the victory. Of good over evil. If 
fight the real enemy. On Drive Time, Cormac spoke to Daniel Glass, who was working with Sinead at EMI Records at the time and was there that night. I, I had never witnessed anything like that in my life. The, um, the shock, the awe. And, and as I remember it, no one knew what to do. So people froze. Normally a director and, and an a, assistant director has commands like cut to camera one, a fade to black. All the, all, no, no one did anything. There's silence. And that delay, whether it was six seconds, seven seconds, I'm not even sure. It felt like eternity. People froze. And obviously that camera person kept fixated on her. And no one knew the magnitude of what had just happened from a political standpoint, a religious standpoint, a cultural standpoint. So we were in shock. And how was Sinead, um, Daniel? Because you went to her dressing room immediately after that. Well, no one knew what to do. You know, people are just shuffling out which is the normal end of SNL is usually euphoric and a lot of hugging and high-fiving and, you know, well, let's all make plans to go to the party, the after party. So no one is talking to Sinead. And she was in her dressing room by herself. Uh, I knocked on the door and I, and she's in there. Her hands were clasped behind her back. And she was, I don't know if she was mumbling poetry or singing a lyric or staring, but it was a nervous uh, she was moving around a lot and she had her socks on, I remember. And uh, it was hard to talk. Did you talk to she her? She obviously didn't want... No, she didn't want to talk. A few days later, she was to perform at a Bob Dylan tribute concert at Madison Square Garden. On Morning Ireland, Anya spoke to Britney Spanos of Rolling Stone. The absolutely visceral booing she got on that stage, this tiny little frail creature from the mm. crowd and the way she just stood there she wouldn't let the musicians play. She stood there and let them hate her. And the man who came out to her side and put his arms around her was Chris Christopherson. Yeah, I mean, she was, what she had to endure after making the statement that she did was, I mean, wild. I mean, what uh, the way that people reacted to it is is so incredibly immense and I mean, it's something that that wasn't even the first time in her career that she had endured that. She had refused to have the national anthem play before she went on stage one time. And Frank Sinatra had commented that he would punch her. You know, it's not even the that wasn't the first or the last time that she had dealt with something like that. But she was so incredibly powerful and really asserted that power and asserted who she was and didn't let that stop or deter her. And of course, as we would all come to learn, her actions would be vindicated. On Liveline, historian Dr Mary McAuliffe talked about Sinead O'Connor's championing of the underdog and the marginalised and just how being who she was, that visibility, was so important to so many and Irish women in particular. And this is really what I was thinking about, thinking about Sinead O'Connor and going back to that time in the early 90s, is that she recognised something that a lot of Irish women didn't see for themselves at that time, because I think there was still a lot of blindness to the true picture of how uh, women were in this country at that time. Well, I think there was, although the generation who were growing up with Sinead were seeing it particularly if you were in the urban areas, if you were, uh, you know, if you've left home um, in the country areas and had come up to the city and when the, the X case happened and all the things that happened in the 80s all informed this growing consciousness about women's position within Irish society and this growing resistance to the dictates of the church 
and the state, I mean, it was both of them together, saying that you had to be this type of woman. And then they come, this young woman comes along with her shaved head and her, her uh, you know, big boots and her wonderful voice. And she could have just gone on and been a really successful musician, as she was. But she wanted to use her voice for something more than that. She wanted to use her position in society for something more than that because she was angry. She had been through those experiences. She knew what it was like to be somebody who was oppressed or somebody who was put down for being who she was. Uh, And she used all that anger to help other people. I mean, she wasn't just an ally and a feminist. She was an ally to so many marginalised communities. To, during the AIDS epidemic, she wore the AIDS T-shirts. She spoke loudly about it when the state was not responding to the deaths of so many young men uh, and indeed some women. She spoke about she was marching against racism from early in her career. She was a great friend to the traveller community. Uh, she was a great pr- friend to the trans community. She recognised the inequalities in society and as You know, a couple of months ago when she got her classic album award, she said, refugees, all refugees are welcome here. That was in March 2023. She remained her authentic self. And we heard so many stories over the last few days about Sinead O'Connor's acts of kindness, generosity and charity. And also her really wicked sense of fun as well. You said she's a, she was incredibly funny. Oh, she was really funny and that was funny. That was weird as well because when she got to know you a bit and when she relaxed, she would tell the most filthy jokes. Absolutely <laughs> outrageous. <laughs> and, and everyone who knows her knows that. But but she was always so funny. She And she'd be laughing now. I know she would. She had a very a great sense of the absurd and really good at taking the piss yeah. out of everything. Victoria Mary Clark on Drive Time. And on the News at One, film director Neil Jordan, who'd worked with Sinead on The Butcher Boy. And he told Gavin about their friendship. You know, I'm godfather to her, to her youngest child. I knew her through various ups and downs. I'd meet her. You know, our paths would cross and uh, we never fell out. <laughs> and it was difficult not to fall out with Sinead at some stage, you know. But, uh, even when she fell out with people, she often get back into loving them again. You know? So, we, you know, she was a big person in my life, yes. When did you see her last? I saw her last about a month ago. She had rented a little cottage in Dorky, and uh, I was walking down there, and she was sitting outside the bench of this tiny little cottage smoking a cigarette. And all these tourists were passing by, and none of them had a clue who she was. So we sat down had a cup of coffee and talked about music, you know. How was and she? I thought, she was great. She was great. And then she moved to Brixton and sent me a few texts saying she had left, as she called it, Dyerland, you know. And, uh, you know, I just wish she was still around. That's all, really. On Thursday evening, a vigil in Temple Bar to remember Sinead and pay tribute to her music. On Morning Ireland, Molly O'Connor brought us these voices. She's such an icon and I realised in the last 24 hours since I heard the news that she's our warrioress, she's our woman, she's it. Like, like you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Shock, disbelief, because I was actually thinking of her recently, you know, uh, very recently, like in the last week or so, and wondering how she was getting on. Just sadness, complete sadness. It's just a really strong emotional loss, even though I never mentioned it. You know, yeah, she meant so much to me and she was such a 
a powerful figure in my life. So it was just yeah, complete sadness and shock. Huge example to young women to show people that they could get through. A huge example to other artists to see that they could stick up for themselves against the music industry and forge their own way. And on society in general in her campaigning ways, I think that she had a big effect. People saw her as a person who wasn't afraid to speak out. She was a trailblazer. She was like a she was like a warrior queen. And sometimes we don't have those figures. We don't have enough figures in Ireland of women who are so courageous, so brave, ready and willing to lose everything to speak the truth. At the end of the day, she was an activist and she was a political singer. Um, at no point did she sell out. She continued to be that brave, fearless warrior queen. Sinead O'Connor, may she rest in peace. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Monday, a little booty no longer. Now Twitter is a big black X. Not quite so cutesy. Ray spoke to Martin Grasser, one of the team of three who designed the bird we all know slash knew so well. But it wasn't their first logo. Twitter came about in 2006. And originally, what was their, what was their logo? First, it was sort of this green um, blob of slime. Um, that was TWTR and it was just sort of this globule slime thing. And then at some point they updated to a cartoon bird and then I think it was redrawn maybe once or twice. And then I, I was approached in 2011 to help, um, sort of clean up the bird and balance it out and make it a little bit more, um, presentable. And that's the bird that has been in the world since, um, 2012. And he outlined the thought process behind their design. Think circles, lots of circles. I started drawing birds with, you know, pen and pencil, and we were sort of drawn to this round form in the belly of a hummingbird. And when we brought it into the computer, we started using just circles, a pattern of circles, 13 circles to draw the bird, one for the head, one for the body, a certain group of circles for the wings. And what it ended up giving you this feeling is this um, overall neutrality and simplicity um, in the logo design. And I think that's part of what made it, um, so iconic is it's super simple. Uh, it couldn't be any simpler. It's one shape repeated 13 times to make this little bird. So even even the beak, they're arcs it, of a circle. Yeah. Arcs of a circle. Yeah. yeah. Is it any particular bird? It started with like, it really started with a hummingbird because I think that's where we started to get this gesture of almost this upright bird mm. tilted back with sort of this this belly, this round belly. And we liked the idea that the bird was pointed upwards, that it was going, you know, soaring instead of flying flat. And so that's where some of the pencil drawings came from. But once we got into the computer, we were trying to make it the every bird. However, the every bird is now dead, knocked off its perch by Elon Musk. But what does he make of the X? Go on, you hate it, don't you? It's a black X, which which is sort of threatening in a way. Is it not? Yeah, I mean, it's a X is an interesting letter. I think it's going to be an, yeah, inter, an interesting design challenge to make it feel welcoming and approachable. <laughs> exactly what we're talking about. Like it's a sharp, angular yeah. form, and so it'll be a tough it'll be a tough design assignment. But I I think you know what they said is what they have right now is temporary, and so you know excited to see what they can come up with. I think the the idea of a singular letter is really cool. The challenge is theirs. They own it. It's up to them to define it. And so I think that it's possible. I just think it's a it's a challenging letter. 
Yeah. What letter would you have chosen? <laughs> I liked I liked the bird. I think we were, we were yeah. fine where we were. Like a bee. A bee is a bee is nice. Yeah. Like some nice curves on a bee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, it's there was nothing wrong with it. Maybe don't don't change it. What, yeah. What's working? Curves on a bee. The poor little bird. Don't make us set an oil hatch on you, Elon. The seven deadly sins on the drama on one. Now you would be forgiven for a little bit of sloth. It is the weekend after all. Gluttony, not ideal, but you know, biscuits. And lust, well, life is for living. But for writer Anne Enright, pride is the one to really get your teeth into. Pride is my favourite sin. It is the most interesting sin. If you look at the other ones, envy, gluttony, lust, anger, greed, sloth. They're all really too enjoyable to write about and too banal at the same time. These are the sins that babies are born with. We couldn't live without gluttony or lust or greed. I suppose sloth is a sin of old age. It's ages before a child gets lazy. But pride is my favourite sin because it is a sin of the mind and therefore more interesting than sins of the brute flesh. It's also a great Irish sin, and I think it's a great Irish woman's sin. I look at a lot of my narrators, a lot of my characters are Irish women, and a lot of them suffer from thinking that they're above it all, really. Um, it's a housewife's sin. The woman who's proud of her housekeeping, proud of her clean floor, proud of her children's clean clothes, proud of her fine husband's fine job. It's the inverse boasting of... Um, the ordinary woman who says, oh, the car, the new car is too big. I can't reach the clutch. It's also a sin of the underdog because sometimes all you have is your pride. And that is why the voice came very easily to me when I uh, started to write this story. I had Eleanor Methven already in mind, a very proud Northern Irish woman. I think Northern Irish women actually do pride better than their Southern uh, counterparts. And I wrote about death. The title of her drama, Until the Girl Died, which burrowed under the skin of that trickiest of sins. My husband is a fantastic man. And until the girl died, beetling along in her little Renault Clio on the wrong side of a road in Tuscany, until the girl died, that was enough for me. To be married to a fantastic man who loved me and was prone once in a long while to a little lapse and a lot of Catholic guilt about it. Oh, the bloody bunch of flowers in the new coat in Richard Allen's sale. Isn't it worth it? I used to say. Isn't it bloody worth it for a trip to Brian Thomas's and a long weekend with the kids? All of us together in Ballybunion, walking the winter beach couple of bottles of wine and more conjugal antics than is decent at our age. With my wonderful husband. Home again, after his little lapse. Some over-ambitious young one who will shortly be fired. Thank you, darling. I know, I know you will never do it again. But actually, I hated it. It was like living on the page of some horrible Sunday newspaper. Horrible people. Horrible people with their horrible sex lives and their horrible money. No. He works hard, my husband. And I have always been a great asset to him. And we are ordinary people. And I am proud of that too. 
from the drama on one. On Wednesday, Perth, the World Cup, a first half goal, hooray! But ultimately, for the women's football team, it was not to be defeat to Canada, so not getting out of their group. But Nigeria on Monday, so it is not over yet. And sport ball continues. Palpitations in Kerry, sweaty palms in Dublin, kids screaming all over the counties. We won't even mention Mayo. But Sunday's football final, the pundits were out. After her days, do the kind of build up there, do you know, you you get a bit excited. What? Are we on? Yes, we are. Don't mind him, Desmond. And here he is on Morning Ireland with former Dublin player Paul Skin in the Game, Flynn. You were saying to me coming in, this game could be overanalyzed as well. So many elements to it. I spent, I'd probably overanalyzing myself this <laughs> week, to be honest with you, you know, thinking about it, talking about it. And these games take on life of their own. You know, when you have two teams that are so evenly matched, it's just a case of big players, big moments, big players stepping up. Okay, you can look at the kickouts, you can look at, you know, how they're, what their t- attacking patterns are, who's going to get the sweeper in defence. But both teams will broadly mirror one another. They'll have similar tactics that they're going to deploy. It's about who can deploy them better on the day. But when you're down the straight, when you're down the stretch, the last 10 minutes, last five minutes, who's going to step up and go and go win the game? Now, clearly, he can't say who he thinks will win. Marty, on the other hand. Can I predict your prediction? I, you can. I, I think that you're going to say that it's Dublin's match to win. I have that feeling, to be honest with you, Philip. Um I just fancy Dublin just might get over the line. Well, now we're definitely cheering for Kerry. Do love an underdog. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Wednesday, an independent review of our child and adolescent mental health services, CAMS, and a finding that the state cannot currently provide an assurance to parents or guardians in all parts of Ireland that their children have access to a safe, effective and evidence-based service. For Drive Time, Barry Lenehan parsed the findings of this review. What did this review uncover? Of serious concern for the Mental Health Commission was how some children with mental health difficulties were effectively forgotten by the HSC, left on heavy antipsychotic medication, which as we know can carry severe side effects without follow-up appointments for up to two years in some cases. Children on these heavy, powerful drugs without common essential medical checks, such as blood tests, weight and ECG monitoring. Inspectors also uncovered how one CAMS team alone had 140 lost or open cases. And today Dr Finity confirmed how the 140 children in these lost cases, as they've been called, have been found and there is a plan to see them. Overall, the HSE saying this evening how it has identified 576 open cases in CAMS nationally and it has contacted these families. The report by Dr Susan Finnerty, Inspector of Mental Health Services, covers 2022 and 2023 and it has been published by the Mental Health Commission. At 140 pages, the review looked at a sample of 10% of files and it had these findings on monitoring of drug intake and record keeping evidence that some CAMS teams weren't monitoring the administration of antipsychotic medication in accordance with international standards. There are no national standards for this in Ireland and in one CAMS team the previous consultant psychiatrist had left without reallocating their caseload and the team were ultimately left in a situation where they were trying to identify which of the psychiatrist's patients required follow-up. 
And one of the reasons, Barry, why cases might have fallen through the system might have been the poor record keeping in CAMS uncovered by the inspector. What can you tell us about that? Dr Finnerty said the lack of IT services in CAMS nationally is, quote, a major concern with the risk of losing cases and follow-up. Most services were unable to manage appointments, staff rotas, clinical files or patient activity reports, computers out of date, digital infrastructure largely absent except for the widespread use of Excel spreadsheets. Paper-based clinical files were handwritten. They were illegible. They had loose pages they were incomplete and bad infrastructure prohibited almost all but the most basic of audits it took one CAMS team the commission found three days to identify open cases under its care one team didn't know which patient files were opened or closed and Dr Finnerty told me at the launch of the report earlier how the response from the HSC as to why this was the case uh, in 2023 was unsatisfactory and it's likely the HSC electronic systems, not just within CAMS but across the service, lag behind the worldwide norm and plans for reform, she said, simply haven't progressed. What else then? CAMS is creaking at the seams, the report states, with an increasing risk to children, long waiting lists, a postcode lottery, both across different CAMS services and indeed within them. The Commission also finds how a lack of governance in some areas is contributing to an unsafe service. There's a failure to manage risk, a failure to fund and recruit key staff and a failure to provide a standardised service. From Drive Time. Yesterday, Philip got a response to that review from Minister of State for Mental Health and Older People, Mary Butler. Again, I have to come back to the question of how it is that all of this can be a surprise to you. RT Radio 1's Barry Lenehan has been reporting for quite some time now, talking to parents of children who have said repeatedly that they just cannot get access to services unless they are in an absolute emergency and crisis situation. Listeners to Radio 1 have been hearing that for well over 18 months at this stage. How come you're not? Philip, you're you're misquoting me. I never said I was surprised at any report. I've never said that. If you're not surprised, then you were content to sit there and not do enough. No, I absolutely was not content to sit there. So what I have done this year is I've put in place a national clinical lead for mental health, Dr Amanda Burke, an executive clinical director with 30 years experience in CAMS. That was never in place previously. I have also secured an assistant national lead taking up post in September and we will have um, we have established a new national office for child and youth mental health within the HSE. These are all things that are new. OK, that's the first point. The second point is you speak there about children not being able to access CAMS. And I have spoken about that postcode lottery. But also to be fair to the teams working on the ground, there are 21,000 children accessing CAMS at the moment. You have to have a primary diagnosis of mental health to access a CAMS team and maybe a secondary diagnosis of autism. But I will go back to the point again that there are very many genuine concerns raised by Dr Finnerty in her report that we will address, but we actually started to address them immediately okay. after the interim report was put in place. Minister of State Mary Butler with Philip yesterday. 
Emma Donoghue chatted to Trevor Keegan on Out and Proud, a new series delving into the lives of the LGBTQIA community. And the writer is about to celebrate 30 years with Chris. Who is Chris? How does she describe her? What word do they use? It's, it's funny, we've never said wife because I suppose we, we paired up in the early 90s when not only was there no same-sex marriage, but we coming out of feminism, we saw ourselves as kind of a, a different form of relationship, you know, like, like somehow freer and more chosen and more, um, I don't know, like a really high-quality relationship, not just some, you know, sluggish, zombified existence of, of going to the supermarket and dragging the kids to school. No, no, this is... This is true love. <laughs> and so occasionally, you know, like most of our friends by now have had a sub form of wedding. And so Chris and I sometimes joke like, like, oh, look at us in our radical bohemian lifestyle, <laughs> you know, yeah, just because we've never technically got married. It's funny, on my early books, I used to write, Dunning who lit us with her lover, <laughs> which some people thought was, was really, you know, claiming to be cooler than I am. Um, but no, these days I, mo- I mostly say partner. <laughs> From out and proud. Now, when comedians get together, or when Oliver met Emma, well, they didn't seem to notice that the old red light was on, which made it a great listen. And for Emma Doran, the pandemic, whisper it, worked out quite well. Mad, isn't it? Her phrase, and one for all seasons. You've trademarked mad, isn't it? I hope so, yeah. But we, as Irish people, now I can't take too much credit, we are great at phrases that mean absolutely nothing (laughs) and that cover a multitude. You know those phrases, like if you ask someone how they are and they say grand, I mean, that could mean anything. Mm -hmm. It could. It it can be used anywhere from giving birth to um, arriving at a funeral. Yeah, you won the lotto. How are you feeling? You've been declared bankrupt, anything. So I think mad, isn't it, was the one that got us through Lockdown, because when you got to that point of saying all you could say, <laughs> and you could say we, to anyone, anyone, you could say to someone who was heading off to get their first vaccine, or you could say to somebody who was protesting outside of GPs about vaccines. Mm. Oh, that is not perfect, <laughs> perfect. It's kind of that's like right, that's actually a good way of placating those protesters, wasn't it? Yeah. Mad, isn't it? Because they're not sure which side. They're just assuming based on confirmation <laughs> bias. Oh, that, that, there's someone who's with us. It's a handy one in taxis as well. Now they both do sketches. They both do stand up. Why? It's embarrassing. I mean, the whole thing is embarrassing that you are <laughs> saying I'm so desperate to make people I don't know laugh that I'm willing to go out. I'm willing to organise dates and go to places and walk out on stage. Yeah. It's all a bit much, isn't it? And then people are there going, we want to laugh so much that we will buy tickets to see this. Mm-hmm. And the worst gig of all, gentle listener, your special day. Tell us about the wedding comedy and what we've all had to go through this go on it's bad enough. it's bad I mean look I'm still available um, <laughs> I'm with Avery you can email John uh, happy to do it but <laughs> but it won't go well for anybody go. it's Is not it, going to make your there are special two camps. better there are two yes. camps in a, at a wedding and they're watching out for each side laughing at the other person's expense at the other it's very hard and some like it may be a case of I'm very good bride. at it, by the way, also available. Yeah. Better, better than Emma Doran. Sorry, continue no, on. No, look, I'm probably cheaper. So it depends on what your budget is. If I'll do budget. for less. Because I don't have Avery Talent Agency. They add cream on top, so I would do it. I will do it for cash. Can we say that? Can we? Sorry, this is still live, by the way. Just yeah. let you know. Five no, one, five one. Before text. COVID, you used, there was plenty of cash in comedy. 
Cash in your hand, it's all gone. No, not a good thing to be admitting. You know. Okay, but whatever. No, go back to the wedding comedy that's so. what we're interested in now. <laughs> it is, you know, it's it's a prime wedding season and people are now yeah. listening to this going, yeah, I've actually got a comedian booked. It's tough because there is actually so much entertainment at a wedding. You've got the speeches, but you've got like Auntie Mary who is proclaiming that the wind just hit her in a certain way or she's just off antibiotics or... <laughs> She's wearing slippy shoes or whatever it is. So there's all sorts of entertainment going on at a wedding. I'm not sure if you need a stand-up comedian coming in. <laughs> I mean, you take the money and run, don't you? Just make sure you charge fat, all right? <laughs> <laughs> and there we will leave it. Well, that is it for this week's Playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.